We're sorry, our staff is answering other calls. Please hold on and we'll be with you shortly. Walgreens Pharmacy, how can I help you today? Um, hi, I've called a couple times in the last few weeks to try to refill my hydroxychloroquine, and I was wondering if I can um, try again. This woman has lupus, and she's been trying to get her medication, hydroxychloroquine, for a while now. Give me one moment, okay? Okay. She lives in the Northeast, and, you know, by the way, we're not using her name because she broke some laws to get her medication, but we'll get to that in a moment. So she found out she had lupus more than two decades ago. You know, I was 23. I was in grad school. I was kind of burning the candle at both ends and running around like a crazy person. So it didn't really seem like much. And then it it hit really hard. I was actually... Lupus symptoms vary widely from person to person. That makes it tricky to diagnose. So the reason um, I got a quick diagnosis is because I have... I'm one of the, the small percentage of lupus patients that have an organ failure involved. So my kidneys shut down like within a couple of days. She went through intensive chemotherapy treatments and started taking hydroxychloroquine. Without that drug, she gets what lupus patients call flares. For me, the first thing that starts happening is I get um, small joint pain. My hands, ankles, wrists, things like that start to get... The symptoms can get debilitating without treatment. But then once you get into sort of the large joints, with me, it would be, it was my hips and my neck. Often my jaw um, would just be inflamed and achy. And it's like if you have a sprained ankle, not a significant sprain, but like even a small sprain where you feel bruised, it's sort of like that throughout your entire body. She takes hydroxychloroquine every day. And now she's worried about her supply. And I was hoping to get at least so that when I run out, there's something there out of concern that it's not going to be around. Yeah, so unfortunately, they're actually protecting this drug. So because you still have a supply left, I'm not able to give that out to you yet. Um, and when we do start giving it out, it's going to be in 30-day increments. That's just... Um, the new mandate that came out. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, treating COVID, the speed, the safety, the effectiveness, and the options. So the story of the lupus patient we spoke to is troubling, an important and proven drug that's known to work for her disease, is suddenly being scooped up around the country to treat COVID-19. Take it. I really think they should take it. But it's there. Yeah, that's President Trump there, and he's repeatedly promoted the use of hydroxychloroquine, an old anti-malarial drug. And I say it, what do you have to lose? I'll say it again, what do you have to lose? Well, this drug can increase the risk of cardiac arrest. It can cause vision loss and liver damage. If this drug works, it will be not a game changer because that's not a nice enough term. It will be wonderful. It'll be so beautiful. It'll be a gift from heaven. 
if it works. Now, in the scramble for any kind of treatment for this disease, hydroxychloroquine is suddenly in short supply for the people who need it. The woman we spoke with is lucky, and she knows it. She has her pills now. She leans over the counter. She tosses them into her mouth. That feeling of relief, it's a sharp contrast to where she was a month ago. Her pills were running low. She needed help, but didn't know where to turn. So she did what a lot of people do. She posted a message on Facebook. Four weeks ago, I tried to refill my hydroxychloroquine, my lupus med that's kept me alive for 26 years. I was denied and told to try again later. All the meds had been sent away. The pressure by President Trump has forced meds away from patients who need it, rely on it. This is literal malpractice. She got a lot of responses to that Facebook post with ideas about where she might be able to get her medicine. People were like, oh, you have to give this guy an e-check and it comes unmarked. I'm like, what? No, I... Like, I'm not going to get bargain drugs from, like, Joey in Canada. I don't know who these people are. But she got one message from a friend who she trusted in another state. This friend also has lupus, and she had an unfilled prescription for hydroxychloroquine. She's like, hey, I'm going to see if I can get this filled, and I'm going to mail it to you. So, believe it or not, I received my hydroxychloroquine in a box that came from my mailman, which felt really um, creepy and drug dealer-ish, but it, you know, I've got some more now. So remember I told you we couldn't use her name because she broke the law? Oh, I'm positive I did. It's against the law to give your prescription medication to someone else. It's against the law to accept it. It's against the law to do it across state lines, and it's against the law to do it using the mail. No matter how good your intentions or how urgent your need, all of this is against the law. That's where we are. Law-abiding lupus patients committing felonies to ensure their supply of necessary medication. People who don't have lupus are taking a drug with a host of known side effects to prevent or treat suspected COVID-19, even though no one knows whether it's safe or effective for COVID-19. That's where we are. Something like this has happened before. It became known as Europe's chemical babysitter. By 1959, Back in the late 1950s and early 60s, a medication called thalidomide, a prescription sleep aid, was prescribed to pregnant women for a different reason. It appeared to ease nausea, and though it hadn't been tested or approved for that use, doctors around the world started to prescribe it for morning sickness. A West German pharmaceutical firm began marketing a new drug. A sedative so effective and apparently harmless, it quickly became one of the most widely used and prescribed drugs in West Europe. It's August 1st, 1962, and there's an important update on thalidomide. During the last few months, as we've been hearing, a number of deformed babies have been born in various parts of the country. These deformities have been attributed to a sedative called thalidomide, which the mothers had taken during their pregnancy. Thalidomide was prescribed in a way that's called off-label for morning sickness, resulting in up to 10,000 babies born around the world with birth defects. 
Now, only 17 of those babies were born in the United States because thalidomide was never approved by the FDA to treat anything here. The American women who used it got it from off-label prescribers in other countries who sent it to them in the mail. If thalidomide had been approved here, it's entirely possible we'd have had similarly high numbers of impacted babies because the FDA does not regulate off-label prescriptions. And that's how many Americans are getting hydroxychloroquine, off-label. It's one of the reasons people with lupus are having trouble getting it because people getting it off-label are messing with the supply. So let's talk about that with someone who knows a lot about the FDA. My job is to oversee the regulatory uh, review and approval of all research that we conduct at the Health Science Center. Joseph Schmelz oversees the clinical trials office at UT Health San Antonio. We have to, you know, fully comply with the laws and put into place uh, programs uh, for the review and approval of, of research. First, what approvals has the FDA given for hydroxychloroquine related to COVID-19? It's been approved for use in COVID research studies and clinical trials, and it's also being approved on a case-by-case basis for emergency use. It is not approved for general use for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19, but you can get it off-label. So, in other words, you could go see your private physician tomorrow and tell them that you're concerned about contracting the disease and your private physician could prescribe to you hydrochloroquine now if, they, if the physician felt that that was a reasonable use of the drug. And that's not anything that's regulated by the FDA. After the president's effusive praise for the potential of hydroxychloroquine, people went off-label crazy, getting doctors across the country to write them prescriptions for it. But recently, that fervor has started to cool off. Texas Medical Association's COVID-19 task force is now urging doctors to stop prescribing hydroxychloroquine off-label, citing new guidelines from the National Institutes of Health. To be clear, none of this means that hydroxychloroquine won't eventually be found to be useful in the COVID fight, but it hasn't been yet. The studies and trials are not done yet. We just don't know. So if hydroxychloroquine isn't the miracle drug some had hoped it might be, what else is there? In the first week of February, an American scientist logged onto an open source website where super smart people like him go to upload problems and reach out to their hive mind of super smart sciencey type peers for help in solving these problems. Something uploaded by a scientist in China that day grabbed this American scientist's attention. It was a three-dimensional model of the novel coronavirus that was wreaking havoc in Asia. The virus didn't even have an official name yet, but this Chinese scientist had made a model and he wanted other scientists around the world to look at it and work together to fight this virus. So this model piqued the American scientist's interest. It was a Friday. His whole weekend was unfolding in front of him. He had this 3D model of the novel coronavirus. He had his computer. That buzzing sound? 
Yeah, that's his server. Okay, it looks like it's running. And he had Rhodium. What Rhodium does is uh, mainly it's an application for virtual screening. And so uh, it uses a three-dimensional model of the... Jonathan Bowman is that American scientist. He works at Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. His focus right now is computer-aided drug discovery. And rank what uh, drug candidates appear to have a good match uh, to the surface of the protein, especially in blocking the active site of a protease enzyme in the case of uh, coronavirus. So for those of us who aren't part of the super smart hive mind for a reason, what he's saying there is that rhodium runs millions of drugs through the system at lightning speed, testing which ones might slow down or even stop this novel coronavirus from replicating. And it's the replicating that causes all the problems. So what I do is I use a computer to design more optimally drugs with a very specific targeted purpose. So over that first weekend in early February, the weekend after he saw that 3D model of the coronavirus pop up on his computer, Rhodium evaluated 2 million known drugs and drug compounds identifying potential medicines that might effectively fight this new coronavirus without a lot of side effects. So I talked to Bowman two weeks later in mid-February, and I asked him if he was still screening for possible medicines. He said yes. We have just screened 5 million compounds. That's a lot of compounds, my (laughs) friend. Um, so what did you find? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) We found some really neat candidates. They found about 60 really neat candidates, actually. Uh, Again, that was in mid-February. So I called him last week and I asked him where he was with these 60 possible drugs. We have 44 out of the 60 that look good. And we had pretty tight criteria Of course Bowman was going to be picky, right? You go into the kitchen, you decide you want to make a, I don't know, something kind of interesting, you know, a souffle. Well, I mean, you don't invite guests over for your first souffle. I mean, you probably practice. Bowman eliminated 16 of the candidates by adding limitations to the search that would exclude drugs that might be unsafe in the doses needed to fight a coronavirus. After all, Rhodium has selected all different classes of medications for consideration, and that is a safety concern. Anytime you take a drug that's been designed for one purpose and you try to, you know, know, translate that into a different virus or purpose, you don't you don't know what the safety will be, and that's because the dosing level might be different. Let's say I found that a cancer chemotherapeutic was an effective antiviral. Mm-hmm. The question would be, you know, those are potent compounds. Does it require a higher dose to kill the virus than what's already been allowed by the FDA? If so, then I have a safety problem. Every step has to be taken so carefully. Before a compound can be tested in humans, it needs to be tested in animals. And before it's tested in animals, it needs to be proven that it's safe to test on animals. 
What we can't do is do the animal testing and kill the animals. Just for a study, I mean, that's probably thousands of phone calls and, you know, multiple hundreds of meetings with different labs in different locations. And yeah, it's a, it's a big operation. And these things take time. Uh, but we don't really have time. You know, people are sick now and there still isn't any approved treatment for COVID-19. We don't have any treatments, right? And we would, we would expect that we should, right? And it's frustrating that we don't. I mean, it's more than frustrating, right? It's, it's, that's not even the right word. But people could die if we get this wrong. That's why scientists avoid trying unapproved treatments on people. They might help, sure, but they might not. And they might cause significant harm. But what if there was already a drug made specifically to fight viruses that has been tested in animals against SARS-1 and MERS, which are both coronaviruses. Huh. Well, there is. 61 people have tested positive for coronavirus on the quarantine cruise ship docked off the coast of Japan. Remember that cruise ship called the Diamond Princess, where people with coronavirus were quarantined at sea for weeks off the coast of Japan? Hello, I'm Carlos, and this is my wife. And we're a family quarantined on the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama. People are very concerned, saying that this ship behind them, which now has the highest concentration of coronavirus patients anywhere in the world outside of mainland China, is starting to feel like a floating prison. Well, the passengers on the ship were some of the first in the world to receive a medicine called remdesivir. Remdesivir is a drug that's been around a long while. It's not approved to treat any infection, but it was looked at early on for SARS and MERS. This is Dr. Thomas Patterson, an infectious disease expert at UT Health San Antonio. Since SARS and MERS are both coronaviruses, this drug seemed like a good candidate. It is one of the few drugs being looked at right now with direct antiviral effects. So it's basically focused right on the virus itself, because that's obviously what you want to do is stop the virus from replicating. So Dr. Patterson joined that nationwide study. And a series of about 50 or so, 53 patients basically responded to remdesivir. Some of them were really ill. They were, a lot of them, about half were on mechanical ventilation. And many of those patients were able to be discharged from hospital, uh, which is a really encouraging finding. Dr. Patterson wants to get better data on remdesivir, but again, that takes time and a lot of volunteers who will take the experimental drug, even though it's not clear how effective or even safe it is. Well, he may be short on time, but he's found plenty of volunteers. And so even though we only needed 300 to make this first assessment, we kept allowing patients to be enrolled and enrolled up to now a thousand. See, some people are eager to try anything that might help them, and some people want to do their part to help advance the science. We give the drug once a day, about the same time. We've usually been doing it in the late afternoon. Dr. Patterson and his team won't know how well the drug works for a few more weeks, and even that is way faster than usual. But Jonathan Bowman, the computer drug discovery guy, so he ran remdesivir through his computer program, Rhodium. 
Oh, right. So, right. No, we have not. Of course, the difficulty with that, I mean, everyone wants that to work. But, yeah, there's no, like, magic bullet that came out of the screening that I did. Right. So Remdesivir didn't perform that well against Bowman's 3D model of this coronavirus in his simulation. But he says Rhodium might not know something that will be discovered in Patterson's trial. And Remdesivir may turn out to be an effective treatment after all. But just in case, we got to keep looking. I'm with two nurses, uh, one needle in my arm, and there's a machine that's mixing, I guess, separating the plasma from the blood behind me. This is Paul Basildua. He's kind of hard to hear because he's on his cell phone and he's wearing a mask like the rest of us these days. He's sitting in an air-conditioned single-wide trailer that's parked outside a blood bank in San Antonio. The machine behind him is filtering out blood cells. The liquid left behind is called plasma, you know, the clear part of your blood. The reason Paul's here is that he recently had COVID-19. My first symptom was uh, March 17th. And then that Tuesday I woke up and I felt like a bus had hit me. I just had a really bad body. Now, at the time, only a few dozen people had tested positive in San Antonio, and it was a scary time to catch the virus. We knew even less about it than we do now, and we don't know all that much about it now. Yeah, it was a little scary. I was just more scared than my my kids and my wife might get it. Right, that's scary. But since he was one of the first people in the city to be diagnosed, he was also among the first to recover. And that put him in... Well, a unique position. I didn't realize it until my wife said, hey, I'm on this Facebook page for doctors, and people are talking about, you know, donating blood. So, quick immune system lesson. Paul recovered from COVID-19 because his body figured out a way to manufacture what are called antibodies. Antibodies attach to the virus itself, and they either slow it down or they disable it. Sort of like poking a stick through the spokes of a bicycle wheel. Now, the cool thing about antibodies is once you kick the virus, they don't go away, not for a while anyway. They hang around there in your blood. Specifically, they hang around in your plasma. This means Paul might not catch the virus again. It also means Paul's plasma is very popular. The, the newspaper article had come out about the first gentleman that received the donation and how he went from really ill uh, to out of ICU within a week. Paul's talking about a patient here in San Antonio who got a dose of convalescent plasma from someone like him who had beaten this virus. Now, we can't be sure if he recovered because of the plasma or not. Say it with me, correlation doesn't equal causation, but... You know, it's a hopeful sign. Patients elsewhere in the U.S. were getting plasma, too, and they were having promising results. It seemed like maybe, just maybe, this plasma thing could be a safe and effective treatment for COVID-19. Where did the idea for this kind of treatment come from? Well, that came up out of what I would say is desperation, honestly. That's um, Angela you know, Hewlett. She's an Ebola researcher at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. System ...to try to help fight the Ebola virus 
to try to save their lives, really. And so that's where it came from. She says plasma therapy is really an old school technique. It's not something hospitals have done for decades, really. And it might have stayed that way. But back in 2014, you might remember Ebola was ravaging parts of the world. Ebola is a disease that knows no mercy. This man is one of many affected by the outbreak in Guinea. But there are teams from around the Ebola is a nasty virus, and in some places, nine out of ten people who caught it died. And so that's a very, a very scary concept, especially when you have a, a patient in front of you, you know, who's very sick, and there aren't any known therapeutic agents. So we had no drugs that had really been tested humans. We had really, you know, no vaccine. We had nothing really to give these patients. Well, some doctors started talking about this old technique. You find a patient who has the antibodies in their blood and you just inject a straight dose of those antibodies into a sick person. It was worth a try, right? Kind of a Hail Mary pass. So they started looking for people who had survived Ebola. We called those individuals um, and I actually made the call for our second patient in particular where, you know, I called the affected individual who'd already recovered from Ebola and essentially said, right now, and is there any way we can get you to a blood bank? And he was very willing to help us out. Now, it didn't turn out that plasma from recovered Ebola patients was very helpful against that particular virus, but this procedure has now been retrieved from the dustbin of medical history to try on COVID-19. People like Hewlett, they know how to do it. It became a tool in their toolkit. So when this novel coronavirus started making its way across the world and the scramble for potential treatments began, this idea... Well, it made it all the way to the upper echelons of the FDA. So I think it's been about three weeks ago. Dr. Peter Marks, who is the head of... The head of the blood bank where Paul, our guy in San Antonio, was donating plasma. Her name's Elizabeth Waltman. Dr. Marks, the guy she's talking about, is top brass at the FDA. And he had a conference call with all of the blood providers in the United States. So on this conference call, he said, listen, I have an idea. We've got this preliminary data from the first few cases of COVID in the United States, and we think plasma from a recovered COVID patient, well, we think it might be valuable. And that he felt comfortable as a result of that data and those observations in reaching out to the blood centers and saying, we need to do this. Waltman is no newcomer to this field. I've been in blood banking since 1979. But she'd never used plasma from recovered patients to treat sick patients. This is new for me, yes. She's familiar with the process itself. This isn't like something that's brand new that no one's ever heard of and no one's ever done before. So the process, that's our lane. That's what we do. And so that's what they're doing. They're putting together a supply chain for plasma and partnering with hospitals to find people who have recovered from COVID-19. So there are lots of caveats here, but this is a big one. Plasma from recovered patients isn't a cure. See, plasma containing antibodies just boosts your immune system, helping it slow the virus down. But if your immune system is already overwhelmed, well, Antibodies can only do so much, right? So it's a possible treatment. It's a tool, but it's not the holy grail, you know? Also, plasma is hard to mass produce, right? Because you can't make it in a factory. You've got to get it from real people like Paul. One needle, one arm at a time. 
So all this talk about plasma, it brings us really neatly to our next section, because to get a plasma treatment, you have to get a special waiver from the FDA. It's an expanded access waiver. Um, You may hear it called compassionate use. You might hear it called by the president, right to try, right? So... So people who are looking for alternative treatments for COVID that are being tested but have not been approved by the FDA, they can ask to try it through expanded access. And so expanded access allows uh, the FDA to, allows a clinician to use an unapproved drug uh, or a a medical device uh, in a life-saving or an emergent um, scenario. Right. So that's Joseph Schmelz again, the guy who oversees the clinical trials office at UT Health San Antonio. So where there are limited or no treatment options available, um, a drug that is currently in a clinical trial can also be given to other patients that perhaps may not qualify for the clinical trial, but their physician believes it's in their best interest to, to use the drug or the device to save their life or to treat them. Right. So it's that Hail Mary pass I talked about a minute ago. It's kind of your only shot and you might want to go for it while scientists keep working on the trials. Now, in a time when we're fighting a virus against which there is not a single approved treatment, some wonder whether researchers or doctors or the FDA might sort of rush to get something, anything approved and that they might cut corners. Schmel says, yes, everyone is in a rush. Right now, if you want to use certain off-label or emergency use uh, products, uh, you have to go to the FDA, and they're turning that around in about three hours. In the past, it may have taken one or two days to get uh, to hear back from the FDA. But he says, at least from his experience, no one is cutting corners. Deciding whether to ask the FDA if you can use a last resort treatment that hasn't yet been approved to be safe or effective, Schmel says these are tough decisions and they're tough discussions to have. But because we still don't have any approved treatments for COVID-19. It sounds like uh, those discussions are happening every day across the United States and in our intensive care units. So I spent probably way too much time on social media. And over the last month or so, I've, I've seen people asking why we don't enact strict social distancing orders every year for seasonal flu. Well, <laughs> there are a few reasons for that. But one of them is that we have known, tested, safe, effective, approved treatments for the flu, like the antiviral Tamiflu. Now, it may only shorten your illness by a day or two, but studies show Tamiflu reduces your risk of the kinds of complications that land people in the intensive care unit. Right now, we have nothing like that for COVID-19, so a lot of people end up in the intensive care unit with few options beyond supportive care, IV fluids, oxygen, maybe a ventilator. That's scary, right? It scares me. I I think it scares the president, too, because he's become a sort of cheerleader for unproven medications, starting with hydroxychloroquine. Then last week, he mused that perhaps an injected disinfectant might help. It won't. Please don't try it. 
But I get it. There is so much pain and so much suffering happening across this wounded world right now, and we all want it to end. I get the magical thinking I'm seeing about possible treatments. We want this pain and suffering to stop now. We want people we love to be safe. But let me tell you this, you've heard some of them in this podcast. There are doctors and scientists, researchers all over the world who are working tirelessly to find and test treatments that might actually work against this virus and the disease it causes. They're doing the work we need right now, and they're doing it just as fast as they can. In the meantime, what do we do? How do we even function knowing there's a disease out there that will make some people very sick and there is no treatment? That's a tough one, right? Well, we distance. We stay apart. We wash our hands and we wear our masks. We protect our vulnerable populations. We protect our loved ones. We protect ourselves. Because right now, far and away, the best treatment for this disease is to not get infected in the first place. Stay safe, y'all. Oh, oh, uh, by the way, uh, do you have any questions about this coronavirus or COVID that we can, you know, investigate for you? We'd love to do it. Or you can check in and just tell us how you're doing. We'd, we'd really like to know. So just email us at petridish at tbr.org. That's Petri spelled like my name, P-E-T-R-I-E. Thank you. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound engineer this week was Claire Mullen. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon. <laughs>